She began her professional career when she was hired for the TV soap opera, The Secret Storm. She's done commercials, TV voiceovers, industrial films, and narration, as well as New York and regional theater. She was the first national president of AFTRA and first co-president of SAG-AFTRA. On this episode, a conversation with Commissioner Roberta Reardon, who during this Women's History Month reflects on the traditional role of women in the home and at the workplace and how it helped shape her life from actor to labor leader to who she is today, the commissioner of the New York State Department of Labor. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. Commissioner Reardon, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, you were appointed by the governor in 2015, Mm -hmm. and then unanimously approved by the Senate in 2016 really one of just a handful of women to head this agency, right? Right. It's very exciting to be in this position. You know, the our boardroom um, had all of the pictures of all of the former commissioners. They're all black and white except the last two, I think. And I walked in, and it's this double row, long, you know, it's all men except for I think I'm the fifth woman, which is really, counting Frances Perkins, it's pretty amazing. So talk to me a little bit about the unique perspective that you bring to this role, not just as a woman, but also as somebody who has been very active in the labor movement. So this is a really exciting opportunity. I think for me personally, it's a great job. I love this job. But it's also, it's a great opportunity to bring all of my awareness of organized labor into the labor department. Because We work very closely, as you know, with organized labor, but we also work with every worker in the state. We work with businesses. uh, We work with the apprenticeship programs. And being able to bring my my labor point of view to this is is really very helpful. Of course, I work very closely with all of the labor unions, particularly the building trades, because they have apprenticeship programs. But um, to understand, to bring an understanding of a worker's perspective into the Department of Labor, I think is a really helpful thing. Now, in recognition of Women's History Month and as we celebrate the accomplishments of women, I want to talk a little bit about how you got involved in the labor movement. Um, you, you're, you were an actor. Mm-hmm. And some people, I think, might think, well, why do actors need these kinds of protections? What were some of the things that you were seeing and witnessing um, that you felt that you need to step up and get involved? So um, actors, people in the entertainment business really need unions because it's a highly competitive industry that is dominated by uh, international corporations. They're very, very big corporations. And think, I always tell people, imagine me as a single actor having to negotiate my salary with Disney. It it just wouldn't happen, or NBC, or Sony, uh, or even a large commercial uh, agency. It just you don't have any kind of leverage at all. And famously, actors actors will act for free. They want to work. It's a calling. It's not just a job. And the union actually helps actors maintain their their living standard while being able to pursue their artistic uh, endeavors. And when I was president of the union, I frequently used to tell my members, one of the main reasons we're here is to keep you from giving it away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which is really true. Now, in in the entertainment unions, the unions set a rate, a scale rate, and everybody is paid at that rate. You can negotiate over it. I know a lot of unions, you can't do that, but in our world, you could. So when I was doing commercials, 
you know, my agent could negotiate over the scale for me, but I could never be paid underneath it. And that was really, really important. It meant that I actually was able to have a middle-class life because otherwise uh, I know people who do non-union entertainment work and they're paid pennies. And the other thing that's really important is the copyright laws. So I owned my face and my voice. My image was mine and you could not use it for free. And that is really critical to an actor's survival. Um, you know, we also, after represented sound recordings artists, think about an artist owning the music that not only the music they wrote, but the music they recorded. That's mm -hmm. how they make their living. And we also covered broadcast journalists, very different kind of ownership, but, you know, it, it maintained for, for broadcast journalists, we made sure that, that journalism standards were maintained for the protection of the journalists. We did a lot of work actually on safety issues for journalists who were out in the field. Uh, but those are kinds of things that you never think about. Everybody thinks about entertainment as being glamorous. Right. And and it can be. But, but there's a lot more to it. It's a lot more to it, and it's really hard work. And it's really nice to have somebody else figuring out safety on the set and ownership of my image and voice and my weekly pay scale and my health and retirement. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing that the AFL-CIO talks about all the time, which is true, my voice at work. I would have been silenced at work if it weren't for my unions. So um, I listened to your Women at Work speech, which was fantastic, Thank by you. the way. Thank you all for inviting me here today. This is what an honor to be able to address this room. And, what um, and you talked about someone discouraged you from becoming president. I thought that was interesting, <laughs> the president of the union at the time. So talk to me a little. And that was when you were becoming or considering running for president of when it was just after. Right. So I was elected the local president in New York, and that was working very well. And I was considering running for the national job. The national president had stepped aside. He'd taken a job on staff at Actors' Equity, and um, I was going to put myself forward at the at the board. And a friend of mine who was a voiceover artist, uh, and he and I have known each other for years, and he did not mean this in any demeaning way, but he literally said to me, oh, it's such a big job. You know, it'll be hard for you and your family. You'll mm -hmm. have to travel. You really shouldn't take it. And I thought, if I were a man, you would never, ever say that to me. And... Um, I just said, you know, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> did that give you even more drive to achieve that goal, do you think? It did. I right. mean, you know, I grew up in a family of six. I have five brothers. And so I always say to people, my father made me a feminist. He didn't mean to. It's just what happened because I watched as a little kid. There were, set, there were rules for the boys and rules for me. And they had better rules. They could stay out longer. They could play more actively. They... When I was, before I went to school and I was a little kid, you know, they were always, in, I had two older brothers and three younger, and they were always encouraged to be um, self-actuating. I don't know how else to say it, but, you know, the, to, to be more assertive. But the minute I got to school where my, I think where I was in a larger environment, the push really was to behave. You mm -hmm. sit down and behave. The boys can go out and do, you know, football and run for uh, school office, but the girls were supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't find that very interesting. <laughs> and you also didn't find interesting that your father thought that maybe you should go to school to learn how to be a typist. So right? when I was in high school, my father wanted me to take typing. And I said no. In fact, he wanted me to take it between my junior and senior year in high school and summer school because I hadn't taken it yet. 
And I just said, if I take typing, then I'll have to be somebody's secretary. And if I can't type, I can, I'll never have to do that. And, um, and to this day, I'm not a very good typist. I'm really <laughs> wicked on my keyboard. But I knew that that was, and, and no offense to anybody who, male or female, who wants to, to be an admin or a secretary or anything. I just it didn't want to do it. It for you, right? Yeah. Um, you also talk in that speech about the importance of certain terms. You always <laughs> describe yourself as an actor. Mm-hmm. You were a waiter. Why is that important? Why did you want to point that out? I want to make a point here. I say actor instead of actress intentionally. Similarly, when I describe working in the service industry, I was a waiter, not a waitress. So language is really, really important. And we do a lot of things without thinking about it. And I always say to people, so I'm an actor. Um, If I were in medicine, would I be a doctorette? You know, it's it's just it's a diminutive, and anybody in that position has the same skill set, has the same should be able to walk into the room at the same level. And I think people, the more conscious we are of language, the more conscious we are of what we're really saying. So yes, it's an actor, it's a waiter, a server. When you begin to add those, and usually they are diminishing at ist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, terms, it's you're implying that the person, if she's female, is doing less of a job. And she's not. Um, I want to take you back to when you were president of AFTRA and then the merger with Mm SAG-AFTRA. I think I've heard you talk about, I mean, that that was not an easy merger. No. What were some of the things that you learned from that merger and why was it so important to have the merger? It's a really exciting day. The meeting last night with the AFTRA National Board was fabulous. People had great questions. It was an overwhelming uh, vote. And we're going to send it out to the members, have a great campaign. So AFTRA and Screen Actors Guild had basically been talking about merging almost from inception. Very quickly, the membership began to overlap because they they did essentially the same work. And it's all about technology. So we needed to have one union as performers speaking for all of us. It doesn't make sense to have a small union doing this and a small union, you lose your ability to negotiate. And ultimately, whether you are shooting on digital or film, it's the same employer. It's NBC, it's Sony, it's Warner Brothers, you know, now it's Netflix and Amazon. It's the same employer. Why would you divide your jurisdiction for political reasons when what people really needed was one union to speak for everybody? The future was so clear because the future was podcasts, it's digital production. People, by 2007, the iPhone was out. People were beginning to make movies on iPhones. Mm -hmm. The whole infrastructure of the industry was changing, and we were analog. We needed to be digital. So that's really what drove the conversation. Thank you for joining us today on this momentous occasion. We are here to deliver the results of our just-completed merger referendum. Roberta? Could you please share AFTRA's voting results? Thank you. Good afternoon. I am delighted to report that AFTRA members across the country have approved a merger. The the actual year and a half, I think, that took the, the whole process, which was pretty fast. We were facilitated. Sue Sherman from Rutgers was our facilitator, and she was great. We learned how to do consensus-based negotiations. So put your political positions Mm -hmm. outside of the room, put the issues that matter 
all the way around the table, in the middle of the table, and talk about how do we resolve these issues together and right, then finding build that out common ground that everybody yeah. can agree to. And that was really important. So mm-hmm. now, in my position as commissioner, I use this all the time. I thank you very much for being with us uh, this afternoon. Uh, if no one else has any questions, I'll entertain a, a motion um, to uh, move the nomination. Um, congratulations. Thank the, you uh, very much. The committee um, has voted unanimously to advance your nomination. Thank you. So I am thrilled to be in Andrew Cuomo's administration. His agenda is terrific for me. I mean, I came in the first year, it was paid family leave and $15 minimum wage. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. We proposed raising the minimum wage to $15 statewide, the highest in the United States of America. And that's what we're going to do today. These are things that I had worked on, you know, in in labor world for a long time. But he also has a very aggressive women's agenda, and he doesn't shy away from it. Um, you know, he's, he's, he understands that, you know, to be really cold about it, take all the other stuff out of it. If women are not equal in the work world, you're leaving part of your economic resources on the bench. So how do we incentivize women to be full partners in the economic success of New York State? Um, that means that we have to have accessible child care. When Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul and I a year ago did the gender uh, pay gap study for the governor, which was great, and it's on the website. You can read it. There's like 40-some-odd recommendations. Wonderful. The number one topic in every conversation I had at hearings, at dinners, at private roundtables was child care. And it doesn't matter if you're a minimum wage worker or a professor in a college or a surgeon in a hospital, childcare is the one thing that keeps women from being more successful. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. It's not available. Um, for women who work shifts, particularly second and third shift, it's non-existent. Where can you point to where there's been progress um, on those issues? You know, um, whether it's, I guess you could say paid family leave obviously has made oh, a yeah. difference. Paid family leave, I used to go out, I would go out and talk on behalf of the governor about it when we were promoting it. And I used to say to, to businesses, if you do one thing, if you talk to the men in your employment to take advantage of paid family leave, that alone begins to reset the meter for women. Because right now, everybody or most people in this country think that family care falls to the women in the family. Mm -hmm. And if men, we're very happy to hear that the data that's coming in from paid family leave shows that younger men are taking advantage of it. They're using it. They're bonding with their newborns. They're taking time off to help take care of their ailing parents. You know, it's a, that shared work is so critical because women internalize all of that stuff. We just automatic, I'd still do it. You know, my mom was moving into assisted living in California. I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and help shut up the house. I have five brothers. Right. (laughs) We can all do this together. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, and and no knock, I'm happy to do it. Mm -hmm. But there's that automatic assumption. So we need to all be very, going back to the idea that words matter, you know, we need to be aware that caretaking is a shared responsibility in any family. Mm -hmm. And so many women are at least totally on the bench or halfway on the bench economically because they can't afford to pay for it or they can't find it. So that is a huge issue. Thinking non-traditional employment for women, there's a, a, a downstate uh, pre-apprenticeship program called non, non-traditional employment for women that 
funnels women into the apprenticeship programs for the building trades. Right, and we're seeing that more and more. Yes. Getting into the building trades. And our feature story tonight is about a job program that breaks down barriers for women by teaching them career skills that have historically been reserved for men. And it's wonderful because, you know, you walk by a, a work site, you'll see some diversity ethnically, but you rarely will see a woman. And it's mostly because women don't know that it's a thing that mm -hmm. they could do. And how do I get into it? So non-traditional employment for women is a way where they build up their skill sets and then they go into the, the regular apprenticeships. We need that in lots of different industries. How many women dream of being an airline pilot unless they're already in the service, unless they're already in the Air Force, and how many women are in the Air Force? How many women think about being a not just a police officer, but a, in the upper structure. So a lot of times what happens is women come into the lower levels of any kind of employment. They don't get to the top because we don't see them there. Mm -hmm. um, Dick Wolf, who did the, um, the uh, Law & Order series in New York City, did a significant thing that absolutely changed casting in New York. When they did the first Law & Order, he wanted to have, they always have the second half of the show, there's always a judge, right? They have to code court, and there's a judge, and there's a DA. He wanted the judges to be very diverse, so they began purposefully casting men of color and women and older people, because these are people that never get cast in those jobs. That's one job in every show, at least one, sometimes mm -hmm. two. That changed people's thinking. Because they saw it. They saw it. And now if you look at any of those procedural shows, they all have people of color doing all kinds of different jobs and women because now it's natural, but it wasn't before. That's the kind of intentional thinking that we need to do as a society. You know, you go out to recruit people, and this is human nature. If I went out to recruit somebody for the board, who would I go to? I would go to my friends. What did they look like? They often look like me. Right. So if I was going to recruit diversity, I had to actually think about mm -hmm. How do I find people I don't know, if, if that's the case? And why does it matter if I choose a diverse candidate? Because for the next person, they're not going to be the first. And that really matters. Do we have a, a law on the books in New York State that prevents employers from asking what your salary is? I know there's been discussion of that, but I've... I've we don't have that yet, but that is something that this administration has been talking about. Right. So I think last year the governor did an executive order for the state agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, transparency, you're not allowed to ask. You come to us for a job. We want to hire you. We can't ask you what your previous salary was. And why is that important when, it, when we talk about women? So women often start out at a lower salary. Even if they start out at the same salary rate as men, if they take time out to have a child, when they come back, now they're it's naturally going to be less. A year. Though. They're right. a year behind at least. Mm -hmm. Then if you ask them what their salary is and you're going to give them a bump, you're only going to give them a bump on what they had before. So it just it multiplies over a lifetime. And by the end of her working career, there there's statistics. I don't have them. We could find them for you. But significant differences not only in the earning but also in their retirement because they haven't paid into Social Security as much. They haven't put into a 401k or a defined pension. And so at the end of their lives, they're, they're really shortchanged in a pretty profound way. Um, and it's hard. I am an employer as well as a commissioner, and I know, you know, it's, it's a habit. How much is, we're going to give them a 10% bump? Okay, but you can't ask what, what right. you need to do is think, 
I have a job. Uh, it is, these are the qualifications, and this is the salary range. This job pays between fifty and $70,000. And Where you should put that fit into that. Yeah, right. and you should put that into your job listing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I mean, that's a real cultural shift. Um, so um, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the Labor Department as a whole. We talked, we covered a lot of things, I think, um, already. But when people typically think about the Labor Department, I think they think about unemployment and the unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other um, things, that, the mission of the agency and the priorities that you want people to be aware of? On the worker protection side, we have all of the laws and regulations, not just wage and hour, but working conditions, asbestos. We uh, inspect, you know, carnival rides. We inspect fireworks. We, you know, all of we Making inspect sure all of that. Making sure workers are safe. Yeah, health and safety. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of the regulations that govern working conditions. And then, of course, unemployment insurance. So everybody knows about unemployment insurance. But the other thing that we get out of UI is we get a lot of statistics. So we have a really great uh, research and statistics uh, shop that takes all of the information that we gather from all of these different places, and that helps support the governor's programs. It helps us uh, predict labor market you know, shortages and things like that. But the thing that's really great about the DOL is we're there, we're here to help people who live and work in New York State get better jobs, find more talented workers, support their families, have healthier workplaces, and one of my focuses has been, I want to blow the doors off the DOL and make us an outward-looking agency so people can say, oh, I go to the DOL for this. We are developing a new branding. We are your DOL. And we really want that to be understood by everybody in the state. So we're here to help. And we have tip lines. We have an 800 number. Um, I, obviously, I will go anywhere and talk about what we do to anybody because I think that's part of my job. We have a responsibility to perform at our very best, to be as helpful as possible, and to help dispel the idea that government's broken. It's not broken. Parts of it are broken, <laughs> but not all of it, and certainly not in New York State. Well, you mentioned uh, talking around the state, and I know you do a lot of traveling and you make a lot of appearances. So I just want to thank you very much for taking the time here with us. Thank you, Commissioner Reardon, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. And if you're interested in learning more about what the New York State Department of Labor does for working people, we're going to include a link to that agency's website in our show notes. Joining me now is our digital director, Kevin Einsman. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Darcy. Um, you saw something interesting unfold earlier this week involving the Department of Labor on Twitter. Absolutely. So Epicurious is a food uh, review site, uh, and they posted a job posting on Twitter talking about uh, 40 hours a week with no benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a misclassification. You can't work 40 hours a week and, and be an independent contractor. So people started uh, tweeting at the New York State DOL, and they responded immediately and said, you know, worker protection team is on it. So they're investigating. So they're investigating. And, and within 24 hours, Epicurious changed the job posting to say, oh, wait, no, there is benefits attached to this. You know, <laughs> we're, we're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, but, it, but it really shows that the New York State DOL is active on social media. They're out there. They're participating in the conversation. 
which speaking of, uh, we're also out there and participating in the conversation. So we want everybody to find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, New York State, AFL-CIO, you know, hashtag Union Strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're out there fighting for working people. We want you to be part of it. So find us on social media. And we're also hoping that you subscribe to this podcast. And now uh, we have a little incentive if people are willing to do that. Yep. If you go to unionstrongny.com, we have an easy to fill out form. And once you fill out the form and you subscribe to the podcast, then we will be able to ship a hat right out to you. Yes. They're going to get a union made union strong hat. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Kevin. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells. Stay union, stay strong.